Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. Welcome to episode number four of season three. In this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting Professor Miranda Fricker, who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at CUNY Graduate Centre, and Professor Javi Carell, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol. What you're about to hear is a conversation in front of a live audience between Miranda, Javi, and the co-organisers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro. Dieter and Ian will talk with Javi and Miranda about epistemic injustice, about harms in health contexts, and about the connections between philosophical thinking and both literature and art. That's all from me. I'll hand you over to Dieter, Ian, Javi, and Miranda. Thank you, everyone, so much for coming. Uh, welcome to another conversation about us, humanities and health. I'm Dieter de Klerk, and together with Ian Sabro, we run this series. Especially welcome to Professor Javi Carell from the University of Bristol and Professor Miranda Fricker from the Graduate Centre CUNY. We're really honoured to be welcoming you into our conversation space, and we're really looking forward to, you know, having a conversation with you. We'll be talking about epistemic injustice, harms in health contexts, and the connections that philosophical thinking has with literature and art. We'll also discuss the experience of illness, how injustice and epistemic marginalization can harm patients, and the challenges of articulating illness experience. Ian, so over to you. You've already uh, been introduced and already know by signing up who we have speaking, but it's a huge honour and pleasure to have these two people here with us. Miranda Fricker, a currently Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at CUNY, one of the most glorious campuses, which it's been my great privilege to visit, a campus in the Empire State Building or overlooking the Empire State Building. It doesn't get much more lovely than that. Um, most importantly, Miranda um, has a specific interest in epistemic injustice and authored the really one of the key texts that has just been so powerful in this field, Epistemic Injustice, the Power of Ethics and Knowing. And she's certainly transformed the life and research of myself and my colleagues. The context and the concepts of epistemic injustice, as she's framed them in her work, have really been transformative in helping us understand justice and the injustice that happens to people in healthcare and um, I know my own work, just exploring injustice for the patients and also injustice for clinicians who struggle to speak of physician distress. Her work has been transformative. And then to pair this conversation up with Javi Carell, who's Professor of Philosophy at Bristol um, and uh, a recent Welcome Senior Investigator, is an enormous privilege. Again, her landmark book, Illness, Cry of the Flesh, I think transformed many people's understandings of illness and the ability to use philosophy to critique and understand illness experience. And she's been a recent uh, winner of a national prize the internet, uh, from the International Journal of Philosophical Studies. Her work is focused on both embodied experience of illness and epistemic injustice and being transformative in the field. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome them both. They both changed my life and my research. And I, from the panellists that we got from around the world now, I know that they're changing the, the thoughts and the thinking of other people elsewhere. So I'm going to start with just a very generic question for you both, which is how came you to where you are now in this field of exploring justice and philosophy in the context of health? And I'll start with you, Miranda, and then and then you can just lead on into Javi, and you can carry on with or without Dieter and I, and we'll try and chip in a few questions as we go along. Where did this all start for you? Thanks so much for such kind introductions. It's a great honour to be here. So, well, for me, um, it came from my doctoral dissertation, 
which was an attempt to do a piece of feminist philosophy at philosophy dissertation level. And it was about something in the neighborhood. It was mainly about why I thought certain sorts of ultra-relativist positions that were called postmodernist positions about knowledge and power and a tendency to say there's nothing to knowledge except a kind of operation of power, why I thought they were a false friend to feminism because feminism, like any political movement, has an investment in saying you know, some things are true and some things aren't true. Bad stuff is happening. You should listen to this. And so I thought the completely commonsensical everyday distinctions between what's true and what's false, what's justified and what's not justified, needed to be kind of vindicated somewhere. And there was too much of a pull towards ultra-relativist ideas, I thought then. So the, the dissertation project was to argue for a sort of what I called epistemic pluralism, just the idea, you know, basically, so one reality on which there can be many equally valid perspectives and no doubt some invalid perspectives, but it's an, an interpretive space and there are different ways of interpreting it, which are all equally valid. And I call that perspectival realism. And in the course of arguing for that, I use the phrase epistemic injustice. I hadn't thought about testimonial or hermeneutical distinctions, just a generic idea that in our function, you know, as we try to be knowers and inquirers in the world, perhaps when we try to tell other people things or we interpret our own social experiences, there can be moments of genuine injustice, which you can't really make sense of or theorize unless you have the distinction between someone being believed when they should be believed and someone not being believed when they should be believed. And if all is an operation of power, you don't have that normative distinction. So that was really a large part of what my PhD work was about. And then it was after that that I very slowly and painfully slowly kind of evolved it into the book Epistemic Injustice, where the epistemic injustice was now then as a central theme rather than this idea of perspectival realism, which uh, I sort of never really wrote up, actually. And how for you then? I guess, you know, through phenomenology of illness and into justice. And tell us about your journey into this place. It all started in a pub, like a lot of good things, in a pub in Durham. That's about as British as it comes, I think I should say, for our international <laughs> audience. I guess I was at some conference and I was, at the time, I was already doing phenomenology and already doing philosophy of medicine and starting to sort of marry them together to say, there's a lot about the experience of illness that we don't understand. There is not. There is a lot that hasn't been expressed yet. There is a real communication problem in that healthy people tend to catastrophize and exaggerate um, the impact of illness on one's life. There's a richness to it that isn't captured in medical notes or medical history of a patient. I just felt there was there was a gap there. There was something a mismatch between the phenomenological efforts to articulate the experience of illness and the fact that it was sort of an unbounded message sent into the world. Who would want to read about experiences of illness? Who would be interested in them? Why should they read? And so on. I was discussing it with Matthew Ratcliffe from Durham, and I was at a conference in Durham, and he said, you know, I think you should meet this guy, Ian Kidd, who does epistemology. And Ian was a young postdoc at the time in the department. I think it was before he did any philosophy of medicine. And we sat down and I said, look, I've got this issue that there's all this stuff that's being articulated, but it's not really clear who it's articulated to and why and in what format. And at the time, I thought of it as just a communication problem. 
And another thing that really bothered me was sort of this idea, that, which is a, an idea in phenomenology, that patients and health professionals come at the illness from very different perspectives. The patients are saying, this is my painful, upsetting lived experience. And the health professionals are saying, you're case number two out of, a, out of 30 that I need to see today and help. And this isn't, I mean, this isn't about the kind of stereotypes of sort of the heartless health professional and the, the depressed patients. I, I want to try and really in this conversation move away from these stereotypes, but still say it, there was a, a mismatch in communication, in uh, context, in the, the world that each one brings to the conversation. Anyway, I started talking to Ian and he said, you know, I think you should read this, this book. It's quite short by Miranda Fricker and I I bought the books the next day and I've got to say it was such a it was such an explosion I mean I think there was a general explosion with all the epistemic injustice literature in lots of areas outside philosophy of medicine I think that in, in epistemology in, in feminist philosophy in social philosophy in political lots but the one I'm the most familiar with it, within philosophy of medicine is suddenly it gave people a tool to understand the source of the disquiet. So I had all these misgivings about how things were happening in the conversations between patients and health professionals. But when I read Epistemic Injustice, I thought, ha, that's it. That is the problem, that the testimonies and the credibility are mismatched and important information is getting lost in the system. Everything that followed, that was a good 10, 12 years ago at least, so the result of that was a really, really fruitful collaboration still ongoing between Ian and myself and lots of other interesting things. And again, all credit to this, to the concept that Miranda coined that has just given, I think, a lot of people who work within healthcare, this sort of eureka moment of saying, I can now articulate what has been bugging me. And that often gets noted as patient dissatisfaction or bureaucracy, or non-patient-centered care. All, there's all kinds of names for it, but none of them are as apt and, again, as productive as, as epistemic injustice. So thank you, Miranda. I mean, I agree that the claiming and the naming of the thing has just been so powerful because suddenly you take a very amorphous sense of unfairness and injustice and shine a direct light on it, and you give it a name. And by naming it, you... I you actually work out what it is. I mean, Miranda, how did you choose your examples? You, know, you, you, you chose some very interesting spaces when you worked through epistemic injustice. You know, is there a place at which you kind of said, this is it, I've got, I've got the concept now and now I know what it is I want to say? Yes. And, you know, in what the concepts pick out, well, certainly with testimonial injustice, which is just, in my account at least, getting less credibility than you otherwise would because a prejudice is operating in the judgment of the hearer. Others have developed it on and have made interesting arguments say that sometimes getting too much credibility can also be a testimonial injustice. And I think they're really interesting developments. I mean, in my own treatment, I was trying in particular to home in on a kind of wrongful underestimation of one's epistemic capacity. Um, so if you're looking at wrongful underestimation, then that takes you to this idea of not getting enough credibility. And so I was exclusively focused on that for various reasons to do with the nature of the book project. But I'm really open and I agree with a lot of the things people have subsequently said about pointing to cases of credibility excess owing to prejudice being equally wrongful sometimes. 
I think it's completely commonsensical idea. I think that the phenomenon of prejudice, meaning you're not your words not taken as seriously as it otherwise would, and also the phenomenon that I call hermeneutical injustice of like having an experience either which is not fully intelligible to me because I kind of don't seem to have the right concepts to capture it, where the explanation or at least part of the explanation why I don't have the right concepts is that people like me are under contributors to the shared stock of meanings that everybody has access to. And that's this idea of hermeneutical marginalization, explaining why I can't make sense of something. So either that, which is the most extreme case, because even my own experience is not fully intelligible to me, or at the other end of the continuum, I exactly know what I'm experiencing. So do other members of my community, people in the social groups of which I'm also a member. But those social groups over there, they don't share these concepts. And as others in the literature have really emphasized, maybe they don't want to share these concepts. And so we can understand what's going on, but we can't make ourselves intelligible across social space. That too, I conceived of as a hermeneutical injustice. And so it's a kind of continuum of cases. Maybe that's not so commonsensical as not being believed when you should be because of prejudice, but I feel like everybody kind of has an intuitive grasp of that. So I was not at all the inventor of those ideas, merely the inventor of certain labels, and I theorized them. So I theorized them in a way that tried to be systematic. So I said, look, we've got cases, let's just take testimonial injustice, cases, some cases of testimonial injustice are caused by the kinds of prejudices that track people through all sorts of different spheres of social activity. So there's hardly any escaping this prejudice, educational, economic, professional, sexual, religious, it's, it's always going to inhibit what you can do. The kinds of prejudices like that, I call tracker prejudices. And the only ones I can think of are identity prejudices. They're the classics sort of race, class, gender, sexuality, and so on. They tend to affect people very broadly. So if you suffer a credibility deficit because someone else is perceiving you through the lens of one of those prejudices, then that experience of testimonial injustice is laterally connected up with all sorts of other vulnerabilities to different kinds of social injustice. And so that was what I call the sort of central case, the systematic case that in a way one's most interested in if you're thinking, hmm, let's think about epistemic injustice because you're interested in social injustice more generally. But there can also just be one-off cases where a prejudice might even be a an identity prejudice. I mean, I remember that one example I have in the book, which came from a colleague who was um, a philosopher of science. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, let me tell you, there are some contexts where just being a philosopher of science, as opposed to a historian of science or a scientist, like you're at a massive international convention for, for science, like the philosophers of science, they don't have any credibility at all, because all the scientists and historians who really know everything about science just regard the philosophers of science as sort of know nothings about science. Unfairly, I am sure, but you know, they were joking to me that, oh, yeah, this happens. But if that happens, then it's a testimonial injustice and indeed from an identity prejudice, but not of the tracker kind. I mean, that experience of testimonial injustice is not indicative of vulnerability to other dimensions of social injustice in any other spheres of activity. It's, it's highly localized. So I just tried to plot on a map of local as opposed to systematic or incidental, I called it, as opposed to systematic, minimal and extreme different forms of the thing so that we had a sort of map of it and to then try and relate this kind of wrong to other conceptions of wrong that we have. Like, you know, in moral philosophy, we tend to think, and I think in common sense, we tend to think that one of the ways in which human beings value each other, value their humanity and value one's own humanity, an important dimension of that, they're not the only one, 
is our rational capacities to know things and convey knowledge and be active interpreters of our world. So as it were, be active epistemic subjects. So if prejudice or hermeneutical marginalization prevents me from contributing and participating in those processes, then even if the particular occasion of it isn't drastically consequential for me, maybe it barely matters, maybe it's you know just one of those fleeting things and has no consequences at the time, but still it cuts deep because one is being underestimated or as it were blocked in a capacity that's essential to human value. And that's how I conceive the intrinsic wrong. And that, I'd like to think that connects with Havi's work in particular, because I think that when people are on the receiving end of either not being sort of believed as they should or taken as credible as they should, or somehow blocked from being able to convey the, the richness of their experience because there is insufficient sharedness of concepts for bad for yeah. reasons, the phenomenology that goes missing, like one can't make oneself intelligible to the other and wrongfully so. And I feel like we all know that that is an experience that cuts deep, even on an occasion where there aren't terrible consequences from it. And I think it speaks to some very deep aspect of how one experiences oneself as valued and one might say recognize is really interesting literature on on recognition theory and applying that to epistemic injustice and these ideas being recognized by another are deeply important to one's sense of sort of validation in the world and one's sense of self so that's one of the connections with experience of illness and somehow being slightly ghosted by the conversational situation heavy would you come back to that and say how it's worked from, from your point of view linking that bit of phenomenology and epistemic theory I think phenomenology, until, say, five or seven years ago, well, at least in some quarters, wasn't seen as political, wasn't seen as a, a liberation movement. And I think that, again, that was sort of the, the missing part in phenomenology, saying, oh, we're, we're just describing experiences of various sorts. So we're just discussing, theoretically, how consciousness encounters the world, which is completely legitimate and interesting a philosophical enterprise. But I think what happens when you are ill is that you're quite desperate for other people to appreciate what you're going through. And I don't mean this just in the kind of sense of psychological release. There's real significance. Sometimes, literally, your life hangs on the line that when you say it hurts here or this isn't right, a health professional pays attention, takes seriously what you're saying. The way in which healthcare progresses is already heavy, bureaucratic, involves lots of people, all of whom are time poor and rushed off their feet and, and very often extremely tired and overworked, especially now in the context of the pandemic. And the question is, well, within all these experiences, and they could be really varied. I mean, take some very different experiences. One of, say, uh, going to your GP with chest pain, one of which I've undergone and found extremely bizarre existentially and phenomenologically being assessed for a lung transplant. And then you have to think, well, what are, what are we trying to gain here? And obviously the ultimate goal, what you're trying to gain is the best possible medical outcome for the person. Well, this is never as simple as it, as it sounds. And I'm sure you have plenty of past experiences coming to your mind, Ian. It's never as simple as it sounds because nothing is simple in medicine biological facts are rarely simple. And every decision you take as a clinician has both costs and potential benefits. And you can't anticipate how things unfold. 
and you have to make risk and cost effectiveness calculations all the time. Nothing is for free. And, and within all this, within all this attempt of this big, heavy machinery to generate human health, there is also a person, a person whose symptoms are being examined, whose body is, you know, laying on the table on the way into the CT scanner. I think that the primary sort of political goal, I think, of phenomenology of illness is to say, don't forget there's a person there. The healthcare system can't lose its humanity. Now, that's one political goal, but there's, there's others as well. There is something, I think, very reductive and simplistic in talking about patient complaints and patient satisfaction, because it's not just about, you know, was the waiting room clean enough today? Was I seen within 20 minutes as promised? Uh, what makes up somebody's healthcare experience primarily is the quality of the communication with the people who are there to help them. And the quality of that communication can be impacted massively by precisely what Miranda was describing, by stereotypes and prejudices of various sorts. So one task Ian and I took upon ourselves was to, to catalog these stereotypes, to, to articulate, to say, what is it that you see when you see a person lying in a hospital bed, wearing a hospital gown, elderly, frail, garbled speech with pasta stains on their on their front, what, what do you see? Articulating the stereotype. So for example, one stereotype, or not stereotype, one effect we identified is one of generalizing. So you take somebody who say is a little bit elderly and a bit frail and not a very tidy eater, and you kind of extrapolate from that that they're also incoherent, that they're forgetful, that they can't describe their symptoms accurately, that they're irrational. So there's a real, I think, warning in the epistemic injustice goal to health professionals to say, be vigilant about your own prejudices. It's not exactly symmetrical, but also to patients to say, be vigilant about assumptions that are being made on you, about you, sorry, and try to call them out where possible. So no, I'm not a hysterical woman. I really can't breathe. So one very sad fact about the lung condition I suffer from, which is LAM, L-A-M, is that a lot of women who come in the earlier stages of the disease where you can do the most to prevent progression get either prescribed antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication or get told it's all in your head, right? Now, a very simple spirometry test that takes about three minutes, if not less, can definitively dispel that stereotype. And nonetheless, women say, oh, for two years, my GP kept saying, you're just a bit stressed try doing relaxation exercises. Now, relaxation exercises are great, but they're not going to stop smooth muscle cells infiltrating into the, into the lung tissue and destroying it. Another thing about both phenomenology and this concept of epistemic injustice is that it gives people a conceptual tool. And I'm a, I'm a huge, maybe naive fan of the power of concepts. I think when you teach, share, and give people concepts, it helps them think more clearly and it helps them claim what say, more respect or better listening or, or whatever. Final, I guess, political magic of epistemic injustice is that once you say it to people, they don't forget it. They take it, they start saying, oh, yeah. So that time when I was being seen by this nurse, she said to me, or that time when I asked for this and they told me, you know. Now, there's a huge spectrum of types of attitudes and mistakes that are being done in a huge system that sees millions of people every year and is very, very 
stretched and was politically damaged by right-wing politicians saying, oh, we don't need this and we don't need that. And within that overstretched and demoralized system, we still have to find a space for people to have these things, dignity and respect and privacy. These can't just go out the window in a system that is, that is overstretched. And again, the other thing I think maybe more hermeneutical injustice has kind of done in that respect is to say my own understanding of myself, my own interpretation of my situation is really significant. And I think you might say, well, you know, everybody is entitled to their own interpretation, but, but a lot of people aren't. So here are some groups. I think children as patients, children who come into pediatric care of, of whatever sort, are very often the victims of epistemic injustice because of stereotypes we hold about children's rationality, memory, ability to report truthfully, and so on. Elderly patients, goes without saying, people, anybody over 60, oh, they're a little bit confused, they're a little, you know, she's an, she's an old dear. I think the, the combination of words I hate the most at the moment is, is an old lady. I've got a, a real bug about it because so many children's books talk about an old lady saying this or, or doing that. There's never an old man. There's just a man. And there's something really belittling about this intersection, if you like, of gender and age, for example. So children, the elderly, psychiatric patients is another example of people whose testimonies and interpretations come under additional scrutiny or are intimately linked to their their identity as a psychiatric patient. And then I guess finally, another reason I think epistemic injustice is really important for patients is because people who are ill are normally already weighed down by their illness and they don't naturally form a social group in the way that maybe people do on the basis of gender, sexuality, race, and so on. So people self-organize into groups, of, into patient groups because they have to. There is very little positive in a, in a patient group identity. You know, there's nothing nice about uh, being chronically ill with something. And, and people do it because they feel they need to campaign for and militate against certain stereotypes about the group, amongst, amongst other things. But these are not naturally organically developing political or social justice groups. And I think that's another reason why this idea of epistemic injustice is important, because it can tell patients, your experience doesn't have to match up to what it says on the website of, of your disease, and your experience doesn't have to be the same as that of this other person with the same condition. It can be completely idiosyncratic. It can be entirely your own interpretation, and it still has a place within this kind of bigger conversation, where I think we're often trapped when we, when we talk about illness between kind of two, you know, the, the, the scylla of medical jargon and the medically reductive way of describing a patient or say a collection of symptoms and the kind of charybdis of saying, oh, you're sick. So here's all the stereotypes I have in my head about people who have respiratory illness and I'm now going to apply them to you and tell you that, you know, I pity you and I'm sorry for you and your life must be ruined and how could you possibly go on? And all sorts of uh, social scripts, I think, that people have. You should be sad, but also courageous. You should be accepting, but also questioning. There's all sorts of recipes I think we have in our heads, maybe based on you know crappy American TV or, or, or whatever, of how people ought to behave when they're given a diagnosis and how they 
ought to behave when they face the end of their life and how they ought to behave when they lose a loved one. And I think these are the two things that phenomenology and epistemic injustice fused together can help us achieve fight. Thank you so much. Before we turn to some questions which are coming in, I wanted to bring something else into the conversation that might open a different strand as well. I was so happy to hear you talk, Javi, about you know, the conceptual tools. And this series is all about celebrating the, the value that humanities brings into the area of health and you know, absolutely you know, conceptual clarity. Now, another thing that in our title is, you know, it's a conversation about arts, humanities and health. And you've already referred to books. And, but, but what we also talked about in our, in our blurb is you know, that we were going to explore connections that philosophical thinking has with literature and arts. And I want just to take this as an opportunity to maybe bring this into the conversation before we tackle some questions that have come in, where for you, you know, the, the arts side of things comes into connection with these, you know, literature or other types of art. Thanks. Yes. And this connects also with a bit of Ian's question I didn't really answer about where, how I chose the examples. I mean, I really love novels and memoir and movie screenplays, not as it were just deadened illustrations of philosophical points already made, but I like trying to engage with them and sometimes have very extended quotations and return to quotations and try and kind of use them as philosophical sources. So you'll analyze the scenarios you're seeing in a novel or in a movie or whatever it is and say, ah, oh, this is, here's the epistemic, you know, in my case, it was, here's the epistemic strand to what's going on here. And I found that very helpful in various ways. It was just kind of fun, but I was always quite interested in whether philosophical texts can be a bit different rather than proceeding in a linear, only argumentative fashion, especially if you're writing a monograph, which I think of as giving a bit more sort of license than, say, essays or journal articles. You can have more of a patchwork text. There'll be some heavy theoretical material and then interludes of what is basically a lengthy illustration, but which then prompts certain new philosophical moves. And it certainly informed my philosophical thinking to look at the examples I was looking at. And it also helped me control otherwise unmanageably huge landscape of material. Obviously, it was a project in very much in analytic philosophy. And in a way, you know, there was so much already discussing things more in a continental vein and Bivak had put forward an idea of epistemic violence and so on. And I, I thought, you know, maybe wrongly, given the kind of weird prominence of my book, but I thought that I could sort of park that and then say, what happens if we start from here? Let's try an analytical approach and see how the concepts shape up and see if we can get to some concepts which can apply to the everyday and in a very everyday way, instantly recognisable by people who don't have a philosophical training. And I also thought that using scenarios from literature would reveal and that these ideas were accessible without philosophical training and indeed make them be more accessible without philosophical training, because we all enjoy reading sort of scenarios and they help gel the ideas in our minds. So it was, was part of my method and my sort of general interest and I suppose my sort of faith in the role of other people's imagination in bringing philosophical things to light for us. And wasn't there a story about how you chose the cover art of your book? <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's, um, I think, maybe personally, I tend to think quite spatially about things. And 
my partner's an artist and that probably prompted me also to think spatially about things. But when I was thinking about epistemic injustice, quite a lot of sculptors, Doris Salcedo, for instance, but also Rachel Whiteread, from whom I have a detail of one of her sculptural works on the cut. I could show the cover. To see the image that Miranda is describing here, check out the episode description. So this image is a detail from a, a large sculpture by Rachel Whiteread. She casts the negative spaces of things. So if you imagine a library book stack and you put some mesh on and then you cover the whole thing in white plaster and you wait for it to dry and then you, as it were, hinge it off and turn it round. So you're now looking at the inside of it. What you'll see on the plaster is the colourful book spines will have bled into the white plaster in rows and you're looking at the palimpsest imprint of it and that's what that is an image of. So that it vaguely looks like books, but it isn't. It's the negative space of books on a shelf. So I love that idea because we had analytic epistemology, which always asked, what is knowledge? What is it for someone, anyone to know that P? What is justification? And in analytic philosophy, I emphasise, not continental, it's a whole different story in continental philosophy, but in analytic philosophy, which I was engaged in and sort of trained in, People always seem to look to the positive, as it were, try and characterise the ideal case, try and characterise success. Of course, there's a concern with how it can go wrong, but there seemed to be a kind of primacy to thinking, you know, obviously, ordinarily, people know stuff and people can tell each other things. It's not that ordinary. It's also just as ordinary that people can't tell other people things and people aren't taken as knowing things. And it goes wrong in these interactive ways. And I imagined that as the, the negative space of epistemology. The negative space of epistemic practices were those practices that would exemplify forms of epistemic injustice. I felt that in all the philosophical training I had so far, and it just wasn't anywhere to be seen in the analytical literature. Why, why was it so blinkered when most of continental philosophy, let alone all the feminist philosophy that had inspired me, especially of analytic feminist philosophy, I suppose. Why, why were they so able to talk about all these things in their ways and somehow we weren't? So I tried to sort of come at it from a new angle. I think there are some differences, though, because there's differences of philosophical temperament that make a, make a difference. At the time I was writing, a certain sort of you know, very exciting postmodernist, post-structuralist post-colonial styles of thought were emerging, a Spivak's concept of epistemic violence, which Christy Dotson has very helpfully you know, taken up and uses for good reasons she wants to start there. It is a different concept because Spivak was very much in her paper, Can the Subaltern Speak, where she puts forward the idea of epistemic violence. She's the most fabulous paper. She's talking from a place of being really fed up with a certain kind of philosophy in particular, she sort of targets Foucault and Guattari and favours Derrida for, as she sees it, effectively annihilating the subject position from which she and others in a post-colonial context would speak and have a subject position to speak from. And these are exhilarating, exciting ideas that have real application, but they are different ideas from the ideas I was trying to put forward. And one of the key differences is that the concept of epistemic violence covers cases where the wronging is done on purpose and cases where it's inadvertent. And I, because of the interest in how decent epistemic practices as normal have certain risks of deterioration into epistemic wrongings built into them, that the kinds of injustices I was concerned with were injustices that we do inadvertently. 
So best judgments about someone else's credibility go wrong through prejudice. If I, uh, if somebody tells me something and I know perfectly well they're speaking the truth, but I, as it were, pretend I don't, that to me is not the phenomenon I was trying to get to. I was trying to characterize phenomena where someone's judgment of another in a situation is an ingenuous judgment, but prejudice has mean, meant it's a bad and indeed wrongful judgment of whether they are to be believed. So epistemic violence is a broader category than testimonial injustice or hermeneutical injustice. And it's also a category that you know comes from a, a particular theoretical framework, which wasn't, wasn't my framework. We've got a huge number of questions. I apologise that we're not going to pick up on everybody who, who's answered, who's asked these people commenting from their own perspectives about, you know, the, their feelings of experiences of people and groups who just not been believed and heard. Um, some comments also around whether or not organisations are willing to listen. So before we come on to some of the ones about uh, perhaps care ethics and so forth, I know that, Javi, you've actually tried to work with uh, regulatory bodies such as in the UK, the Care Quality Commission, and perhaps you could talk through actually enacting these concepts to change the behaviour of systems. I mean, that's a, that's a really good example. It can be crucial to patients' lives and, and welfare. As it was described to me by someone from the CQC, the challenge is to sift through all the testimonies of patients and to find the ones that are flagging up genuine and systematic issue in a unit. The problem with inquiries is that they come after the fact. The Mid-Staffordshire, for example, or uh, you'll remember, I think it was Lord Laming, the Victoria Columbia case, uh, and more recently, the mater- maternity ward came under, under scrutiny for death rates of newborns. And what the CQC want to do is they want to come at these kinds of situations right at the beginning, before it comes to the point where there's an inquiry or a panorama b- being filmed, and to find out what's going on. And one question they posed to me was, how can we tell which ones are the important ones? How can we make sure we don't miss out? And they said the problem is that sometimes there is one complaint, a wrong report of wrongdoing, and then you have to wait until 17 other ones come in until you've got sort of a critical mass and a case for demanding an investigation of some sort. And they were saying, we need to find ways to listen better to the, the first one that comes in and to identify, wow, there's, there, there is a problem. So they're really quite interested in those kinds of questions, you know, how to attune themselves to what's being said. It's one thing if you're reading sort of five testimonies or, you know, the odd memoir of a patient. It's different when you're looking at, I don't know, tens of thousands. I don't know what volume exactly they they work with. But that became to me a really, really interesting issue that obviously has potentially huge possibility for, you know, amelioration for saying, you know, this is how we ought to collect testimonies and reports from patients. This is how we ought to study them. This is how we ought to act on what we find. Maybe the latter, the latter is a little bit more obvious. But that was the kind of really applied work that, I, that I'm, I'm really interested in that can mean, ultimately, if it's successful, a real change for the better in, in the world. As Ian says, we almost have more questions at this point than minutes left in our conversation. So, so we apologize in advance. I'm going to take a, a fairly a broad question that came in. And how has epistemic injustice been received in health contexts, in medicine, 
is everybody on, on board with this concept and, and what it implies? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think, again, the, the kind of uniform response I've, I've seen is people saying, well, this is so useful. When I say people, I mean health professionals and patients. What is also interesting is that people who claim not to have any philosophical expertise or, or knowledge start saying, oh, actually, yes, I remember, you know, this incident and here's what happened. And now I see it was an epistemic injustice and here's what I can do, you know, next time so that I don't end up only half listening to what somebody is saying or, or, or something like that. So I think the reception has been good. And I think a lot more work is needed. I mean, this we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. What we need now is to have empirical case studies carried out, looking at specific locations and instances within healthcare institutions where maybe the risk of epistemic injustice is higher. Looking at what Ian and I in our most recent work call opaque institutions, institutions that are epistemically opaque and difficult to navigate. There's lots of reasons for it, but if you take something like a healthcare system, say, take a hospital. I was recently at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. Somebody went out of their way to color code all the routes and tell you where you are and you know give you locations and numbers all, all through the way. And you, you can't help but getting possibly lost. And it's such a metaphor for you know this kind of thing where you're if you're the insider, anybody who works there, you say, how do you get to the lifts? They'll tell you, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, that way, go here, turn left, second, double doors on your right. But if you're an outsider, it's opaque. Okay, so institutions, healthcare institutions in particular, where, you know, medicine is kind of jargon heavy, there's a lot of medical technology involved, the processes are opaque, often the patient only really sees the tiny sliver of the consultation, which is obviously built on piles and piles of, you know, bureaucracy staff meetings, consultations, pr procedures, and so on. And none of that is visible. So I think this idea that healthcare institutions are opaque and that that is another form that epistemic injustice of a kind can take place is also something, you know, for, for that we started doing but needs more work. So anyway, there's just so much work still to be done on actually finding the causes cataloging the types of epistemic injustice within healthcare and obviously thinking about amelioration. I wonder how important you guys think it is to have it as part of and just an awareness of it as part of medical training because Ian firstly it was actually you and as, as well as then Javi and Ian who opened my eyes to the possibility that these concepts would have application in healthcare so and I don't publish work in epistemic injustice in healthcare but it was doing a doing a lecture in your series at Medical Humanity Sheffield that first kind of woke me up to this. And I remember you saying as we walked up the hill, you know, I think there might be some real professional interest in this and maybe we should think about this more. And sure enough, I got quite a few emails from the doctors who are present, obviously a self-selected crowd, but that was what really made me think, oh, so maybe this wouldn't be like a philosopher just saying, hey, I've got some concepts for you. Maybe there'll be some real interest and thank goodness Javi and Ian and others come along and actually know how to write about this stuff. So that's cool. But I, I really remember the positive reception from professionals there, admittedly just individuals. But then, of course, you went on and I've been involved in this Dutch Research Council funded project with a colleague at the University of Groningen, Boudewijn de Bruin, and the postdoctoral fellow on it was Eliana Fetterolf. And she designed or co-designed a course in medicine and justice, including issues of epistemic injustice that she co-taught with Alistair Wardrobe. And I think perhaps with you, Ian, or 
I'd love to know how, whether the students were interested, whether it seemed to stick and, and how far you and Javi think that trying to in, just introduce the concepts and the ideas at that educational training level, even though people, you know, won't have a very keen interest in it at that point. But if you just sow the seeds, maybe that makes people more open to it in the future. I mean, the concepts were very widely liked. I'm in the small groups that we taught them to. When I was a medical student, it was very hard to find traction in the ideas that you were taught. So the sociologists would come in always in a bit of a uniform. They always seemed to have a leather jacket and a thin leather tie. They would give a social theory, but I didn't know what it meant for the person that I might be seeing next. And this is so often the thing that's foregrounded in a clinician's mind. What do I do about the person I'm going to see next? And I think Ileana's justice course and so forth, where she focused on things like micro, meso, macro aspects of justice, changing ourselves, our local systems and our broader networks, identifying and claiming the injustices is very powerful because actually fundamentally doctors usually are in it for the right reasons, that they want to make the world a better place, but they don't always know how. And in my practice, it has helped me see and claim many more injustices in those in the situations in which I deliver care than I'd realised and help me say, well, actually, what are the injustices in my system? Who do we not see? Who never gets to see us? Where do we fail to treat them correctly? And colleagues tend to find it extremely helpful. And we've also looked at it from the point of view of injustice done to clinicians um, when they themselves struggle to talk about their own physician distress because of shame and stigma within the profession, which I also think is important. So I think the answer is, I don't want to talk about me more than that, but I think it can be very powerful. It's such a tractable concept. The minute you name it, it helps you really claim and see. But of course, the problem is, is I keep realizing just how many aspects of injustice I'm just not even beginning to see. You know, from simple things like we never trained initially that maybe women present with chest pain slightly differently in myocardial infarction than men. And and you you've got to really begin to unpeel all the layers of your knowing to say, where are all these injustices? And that's very hard work. I and mean, have you, you probably will have better examples to add to that. Well, I taught, I taught it to psychiatry trainees. And I think for psychiatrists in particular, it really, really resonates because they're already very preoccupied with the question of, have I done right by this person? Have I listened to them appropriately? Have I taken on board what they've said? Or have I succumbed to stereotypes saying, oh, they're delusional, they're, they're psychotic, whatever. The definite yes, and I, I can even see a place for it within another thing that's, I think, being introduced into a lot of medical schools, which is sort of equality and diversity training. And again, it cuts both ways. I was recently asked to, to offer some advice on medical students who are from a non-white background who get placed in sort of small villages and kind of rural England and get confronted by terrible racism, people saying, no, I want to see a real doctor, that kind of stuff. So I think within those conversations about what's now known as EDI, equality, diversity and inclusion, within healthcare on both sides, there could be a real place for epistemic injustice, just as a, a clarifying mechanism to help people shed light on situations they're in. And again, often in kind of in the heat of the moment, we've seen it lots of times in academia, somebody says something. And only three hours later, you think actually that was that was really prejudiced, or that was really unjust, or that was really belittling for the the, the speaker, or whatever. There is a, a definite place for it in, and possibly within that kind of training. 
I think that's such an important point about racism experienced by the professionals as well, that that's such an important part of the picture and no doubt other kinds of prejudice. But these concepts, as you say, cut both ways, but there's they're there as a resource for wherever they find application. I know from a woman surgeon, I know that that is not a straightforward situation either in terms of gender. And so I think perhaps that has got, always got to be one of the aspects through which these concepts are introduced for people to see, oh yeah, I can, might be on the receiving end, I might be on doling it out without realising I need to think about these issues. Well, thank you both so much. The final question we typically ask our guests is like, what are your hopes for the future for work in this field? That was a big question to, to end on, and Javi, you've already gestured towards some, some of your hopes. I'll just say in two sentences, I think, amelioration and application. I think the more the concept is applied within healthcare institutions and things like the CQC, regulatory bodies, the more people have a chance to reflect on the kind of health professional they are, the kind of patient they are, the better. So I think there's huge scope and hope for applied work in this area, especially when it comes to thinking about amelioration. Yeah, and I'd only add to that what's implicit in any way, but I think it's really worth thinking about all the different forms of institutionalization, you know, as a resource. It's critical concepts that are a good resource for thinking about one's professional practice and thinking about one's experiences as a patient, as an ill person, as a doctor, whatever it might be. How do they become routinized, you know, made available, not fixed and not top down, but just somehow in the culture so that people can use them flexibly and adapt them. Sometimes it's about particular processes. Sometimes it's about ethos. Sometimes it's about opening channels of information and communication. And there just must be a million and one different ways that these things can be infused into institutional life. There's no one way to do it, all sorts of different ways to do it. I think we draw it to a close. It's been a wonderful hour. That's gone by in the blink of an eye. Um, but thank you very much. And thank you to those who said thank you as well. We've enjoyed it. And I'll, I'll settle with this last comment. The fastest hour I've spent in a while. I thank you all. So that's lovely. And we're grateful to the positive comments. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for joining us. That brings us to the end of episode four of season three. Our next episode is the final episode of the season. Dita and Ian will be speaking with Dr. Chizomo Kalinga and Dr. Carla Sampiris about the growth of medical and health humanities Africa. This network aims to bring together practitioners, researchers, artists and activists across Africa who are interested in medical and health humanities. To stay up to date with more news about the podcast and our live events, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Convo Arts Health. This episode of Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.